Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the Kingdom of God. You may be wondering why we're emphasizing the Kingdom of God in this ongoing series of discussions about what we're calling Jesus' favorite topic. There's a very simple answer to that question. Everybody knows that the kingdom of God was the prime concern of Jesus during the whole of his ministry. We've been pointing out the very simple fact that Jesus' message has a definite label in our New Testament documents. It's called the gospel or good news concerning the kingdom of God. And so in order to grasp the gospel message as Jesus preached it, in order to respond sympathetically and intelligently to the teaching of Jesus, which is all important for our salvation, it follows, obviously, that we must try to understand what Jesus meant by the kingdom of God. Now, one of the difficulties we have in understanding the Bible is that we've not been properly taught that the things that Jesus said were very Jewish in character. The simple reason for that is that Jesus was a Jew brought up in first century Palestine and nurtured and reared on the great truths of the Hebrew Bible, what we perhaps unfortunately call the Old Testament. Jesus, you see, learned the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, as a child. He's thoroughly rooted and grounded in the Judaism of the Old Testament, in the Jewish faith. Now, certainly his contemporaries had distorted that faith in many different ways, but Jesus himself believed in the divine authority of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, And so when he talked about the kingdom of God, he was not talking riddles to the people. Now, there were elements of the kingdom of God, of course, that had to be explained, and Jesus did do that. There were parables which explained how the kingdom was going to be finally established on the earth. But the basic idea about the kingdom of God was in no way foreign to Jesus or his audiences. When he began his ministry, he came into Galilee announcing the gospel or good news about the kingdom of God. He called it, in fact, God's gospel, the message that he was bringing from God to the people. He believed himself to be the agent of God, the spokesman for God, and the message that burned on his heart, the message which he had to deliver to the people, was called God's gospel, namely the gospel concerning the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God was the Jewish empire, which was expected by every pious Jew at that time. This was based on the great image in Daniel 2 where we find the picture of four evil empires. The head of them was gold, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian kingdom, and then three other kingdoms, all worldly kingdoms. And then we learn that the feet and the toes of this image were to be struck by a mysterious stone cut out without hands. A supernatural stone was to strike this series of world empires at the toes. And all of those world empires were one day going to be crushed in an instant and they were to be replaced by what was known as the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. We read in Daniel 2.44, an absolutely basic text for understanding our New Testament, that the God of heaven was going to set up a kingdom. And that kingdom was not going to be far removed from the planet somewhere in the remote corners of the universe. No, it was to be a kingdom replacing world empires. It was going to exist on this earth, but it was going to differ in one vast way from all the other kingdoms. 
it was going to be God's kingdom, a divinely constituted kingdom, and the Messiah, or Son of Man, was to be the chosen ruler in that kingdom, to supervise, in fact, a new world empire, a new government of God. So, kingdom of God, we might roughly translate as the revolutionary government of God, in which the divinely appointed Messiah was to supervise a new world government with its headquarters in Jerusalem. And so in the seventh chapter of Daniel we read in the 27th verse that the kingdom under the whole heaven was finally to be given into the hands of the Son of Man and the saints, in fact, both Jesus and his followers are predicted there to be those who are going to take over the power of government of this whole world. Now, that might be very unpopular in the eyes of some, but one day they're going to find out that that is, in fact, the truth of the Scriptures. If one believes in the divine inspiration of Scripture, if one understands that God has had a hand in guiding the affairs of history, if we understand that God has been revealing His will through the prophets and supremely in His final and ultimate agent, the Messiah Jesus, then we'll have no difficulty at all in believing these stupendous promises that at the return of Christ in power and glory, God is indeed going to reverse the fortunes of the present world government systems and change everything in favor of the kingdom of God itself on earth. One of them, Jesus said to his followers, Blessed are the meek, those who follow Jesus meekly, they're going to inherit the earth. In other places he talked about inheriting the kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God is the future hope And it's sometimes forgotten that hope is one of the great virtues of Christianity along with love and faith. And hope is said to be the anchor of the soul. And so nothing could be more important than for a Christian to grasp what his hope is so that he then has the courage and the strength and the joy to go forward through the trials and tribulations of life knowing that his hope is secure in the future. And that hope was announced by Jesus in the gospel as the hope or good news about the coming kingdom. That's why we're praying, Thy kingdom come. That's why Jesus said, When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom in the future, that's why Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper, I will no more drink this wine with you or eat this bread with you until the kingdom of God comes, until this communion service finds its final fulfillment in the future kingdom, when I meet you again at the second coming, when I raise the dead and catch up the living Christians to meet me in the air, and he will then take them to a place of gathering and then bring them into Jerusalem as the capital and the headquarters of the new world kingdom, which will be indeed the kingdom of God promised in the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, all this is very clearly laid out, particularly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's all based on the Hebrew prophets on the Old Testament. None of what I've been saying is in any way complicated. It's no more difficult than grasping the idea of a race. There's a beginning and a middle and an end point. There's a goal to be reached. There's a gold medal to be won. Jesus sets before his disciples, sets before us, in fact, as Christians, a supreme reward, a supreme goal, And he encourages us, so to speak, to go for that goal. That goal is entrance into the kingdom of God at the second coming of Jesus. Paul, in one of his famous letters in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, says that flesh and blood 
cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And by that he means a man in his present constitution, uh, in our fallible and mortal state, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul went on then to, ex- to explain how we're going to overcome that difficulty. We're going to be transformed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. These bodies that we presently have are going to be transformed into what Paul called a spiritual body. That's to say, a body driven by the power of the Spirit in a brand new way. At the moment, Christians are said to have just a down payment, a small portion of the future quantity of Spirit which will be given us at the resurrection when these mortal bodies of ours are transformed forever and transfigured into a brand new image, the image of an immortal being fit to rule with Christ in the kingdom and enabled to live literally forever and ever and ever. That's the objective of Christianity. It's surprising to me that everybody doesn't rush to the Bible to find out the secrets of immortality. Surely we all want to live forever. What could be more glorious than being alive into all eternity? Well, Jesus is the one who offers the secrets of immortality, but he offers those secrets on condition that we abandon our own agendas and our own ideals and our own ambitions and put them in an entirely secondary position relative to his ambition, his agenda, and his goal, which is to grant immortality to those who love him and follow his commandments. Now, the commandments of Jesus are not, in fact, complicated. They're summed up in the idea of seeking first the kingdom of God, making that the first priority in our lives, praying thy kingdom come, and doing our part in spreading the gospel about the kingdom of God to others so that others may join us in the quest for immortality in the future kingdom. We invite you to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke again with that simple scheme in mind and see if the Bible doesn't come alive in a new way. There's a goal ahead of us. It's called the kingdom of God. There's a gospel preached by Jesus to us. It's called the gospel about the kingdom of God. Fear not, little flock, Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 8. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And he meant, of course, to give them the kingdom, to give us the kingdom in the future at the return of Christ to rule in the kingdom of God. Now, that last text in Luke, of course, informs us that the kingdom of God is not the church. Jesus was not saying, Fear not, little flock, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the church. Absolutely not. The kingdom of God is something that Jesus instructed us to pray for. He didn't say they should stop praying for the coming of the kingdom after Pentecost when the church was inaugurated publicly. And so, you see, the kingdom of God is not the church. That idea stems from much later theology. It was Augustine, the famous church father, who finally established the idea of the kingdom being the same as the church, but that's long after New Testament times. If you'd like to make a study of that, we have some free literature for you. Call us at the telephone number to be given at the end of this program. But meanwhile, why don't you search out this matter for yourself by looking at the 19th chapter of Luke and beginning at verse 11. There you'll find that the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately because Jesus was near Jerusalem. And naturally enough, they thought that the king of the kingdom would take up his headquarters in Jerusalem, just as the prophets had foretold. Jesus then told a most valuable parable. He pointed out that he had to leave and go to be with the Father 
prior to establishing the kingdom. And as you read through the parable, you'll find that the authority to rule over cities was granted to his servants only when he returned, that's to say, the kingdom of God, the reign of God through these servants of Jesus and through Jesus himself is the event of the return of Christ. And in many, many passages, Revelation 11, verses 15 to 18, for instance, says that when the seventh trumpet, the trumpet of the resurrection, when that trumpet blows, Revelation 11, verses 15 to 18, when that seventh trumpet blows, that's the time for the establishment of the kingdom of God. That's the time when the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of God. And so you see, the kingdom of God is not strictly here until the seventh trumpet. Until that time, Christians must live in the present evil age, Galatians 1.4. The kingdom of God, properly speaking, belongs to the second coming. It is not a synonym for the church. If the kingdom of God were existing now on the earth, there would be peace and prosperity among the nations, and that is obviously not true. We invite you to examine most carefully this issue of the kingdom and the church because a great deal of confusion arises when we equate the church with the kingdom. Many passages of Scripture place the kingdom of God in the future at the return of Christ. Now, there may be a secondary sense in which those who are now in training to be the rulers of that kingdom with Jesus Christ may be called the kingdom in a secondary sense, but that's not the normal use of the word kingdom in the Bible, as we see from the simple statement known to all of us, Thy kingdom come. Our time is running out for today. We invite you to join us again as we continue to probe these most basic questions about life and immortality as Jesus offers it to us in his good news about the kingdom of God.